0: We'll give our attention to God's Word. We're going to be in Romans two, one through sixteen this morning. And as you turn there, if you have a, a Bible, um, this has been an interesting year. I feel like I've said that a lot this last year. Don't you hate hypocrisy? Isn't there something about hypocrisy that just like makes your skin crawl? And This last year has been unusually full of high-profile public displays of the human propensity to hypocrisy, especially COVID-related hypocrisy. Let me just give you a couple examples. In December, the governor of Rhode Island tweeted, please stay home except for essential activities and wear a mask anytime you're with people you don't live with. Ten days later, she was spotted at a wine bar in public with people she doesn't live with, without a mask at a Christmas event for wine and art. When the governor of Illinois locked down the state last March, hair salons were pushing back saying, how are we gonna make a living? And the mayor of Chicago responded to people who wanted their hair salons open by saying, getting your roots done is not essential. And a couple days later, she had a special hair appointment at a closed salon. And when she was confronted, she said, I'm the public face of this city. I'm on national media, and I'm out in the public eye. Does that just kind of make you go, really? One of my favorites, around Thanksgiving, the mayor of Denver tweeted, avoid travel if you can. I think this was the day before Thanksgiving. 30 minutes later, his flight to Houston departed. He tweeted that from the airport. That's amazing. Rules for thee, but not for me. I mean, hypocrites are the worst, right? The thing is, even hypocrites despise hypocrites. That's the whole nature of hypocrisy. You look down on other people for doing things that you yourself do, and so before we're too quick to say, yeah, hypocrites are the worst, the question for us is, are are we guilty of hypocrisy? What does the gospel say to those who think everybody else needs it? What does the gospel have to say to those who think the standard applies to everybody else and everybody else should be held to it, but I'm the exception? Romans 1.18 is the heading over this section of Romans, from Romans 1.18 all the way through Romans 3.20. So we are in the thick of this section and the heading over it, Romans 1.18, says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul's aim in this section is to lay out this claim that God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness, all of it. By all, he means all. There are no exceptions. And the thing is, sin comes in different varieties. There is conspicuous sin, as 1 Timothy 5.24 says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So there are conspicuous sins and inconspicuous sins. I mean, conspicuous sins are outwardly observable. Everybody knows your life is a mess. You are not walking in God's ways. You are living in rebellion against God. You can put a a meth face on a billboard, and you know that person has made some sinful decisions in life, has abandoned responsibilities, right? I mean, there, there are sins you can take photos of, and you can post them, and then there are inconspicuous sins that are hidden behind outward appearances of decency. And so whether your sins are conspicuous or inconspicuous, Paul's aim in this portion of Romans, from Romans 1.18 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is, as he says in chapter 3, verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped. Every single mouth, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God, including those who trust in themselves that they are righteous, including hypocrites. Every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would be held accountable to God. So Paul is systematically laying out his gospel for the Christians in Rome to hear this is the gospel Paul preaches. Because remember, he wants to partner with them in gospel ministry. He wants to come to them and share the gospel with them. He, he wants to join together with them, so he has to lay out for them the gospel that he preaches so that they know that what he preaches is the truth. And his first point as he lays out the gospel is to prove, Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. None. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1.20, so they are without excuse. Romans 2.1, so you have no excuse. Romans 3.9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the big point in this section. And in this particular portion, he addresses the self-righteous and the hypocrites. There's no gospel, there's no good news without this bad news, the reality of our sinful condition. There's no denouement, no climax, no resolution without conflict. And so, let's give our attention to God's word in Romans 2 this morning, verses 1 through 16. I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me out of our regard for God and his holy and inspired and inerrant word. you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For we, for all who have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Father, this is your word, and your word is truth. Would you sanctify us by your word, that we might know you rightly. You desire truth in the innermost place. Make your truth abide there. Let your word dwell richly in us, that we would know you and your mercy fully. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Romans 2, 1 through 16 is meant by God to strengthen your dependence on Jesus by showing you just how foolish, just how futile, just how hopeless and evil self-righteous hypocrisy is. And it's something that we're all tempted to. And so we need warnings like this to keep us away from putting our hope in any of our own righteousness. This text may convict you of hypocrisy in your life right now, or it may simply serve to warn you to stay far, far away from outward displays of decency while you continue in secret sin. Paul is using this literary device here in this section that's called a a a diatribe. That means he's engaging in an argument or a, a debate with kind of an imaginary opponent. So, when he speaks in this second person singular, you, therefore you have no excuse, oh man. He's not talking to his Roman audience. He, he's not saying that they are the ones doing this. He's showing them how he would preach the gospel to somebody who is caught in self-righteousness and hypocrisy. He, he's probably drawing on lots of real-life conversations that he had when he preached the gospel to Jews. We know from Acts 17, 18, 19, he would go into Jewish synagogues and he would reason with people there and he would prove that Jesus was the Christ and so he's probably drawing from all of that experience of real life conversations and he's probably had actual conversations like this with Jews. And so we get to learn, have you ever watched like a really effective evangelist or apologist present the gospel or defend the faith and just by watching listening to them, maybe Ray Comfort or Jeff Durbin or Psy, 10, and K. You, you learn so much by watching somebody else share the gospel and answer questions and you kind of go, oh, that's how I could handle that kind of situation. That, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He, he's showing, this is how I present the gospel to all people to prove to everyone that no one is righteous before God. And so here, who is Paul engaging in conversation? The, the self-righteous hypocrite. Verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges verse 1 again you the judge practice the very same things verse 3 oh man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself so there's no doubt about who he has in mind and this debater may be jewish but he represents anyone anyone who's ever demanded that others meet a standard that he himself does not have to meet Self-righteous hypocrites deserve God's righteous judgment too. But they don't acknowledge that. They don't see it. And so this text strips away all excuses, exposes hypocrisy so that those who have misplaced their confidence and their false assurance would cast themselves wholly on the mercy of God. So it cries out to you, never, ever, ever trust in yourself but depend entirely on the righteousness of Jesus. And it does that by overcoming the excuses, the objections that might come from a hypocritical person. I want to look at four of those with you this morning. First is the defense the hypocrite gives. Hey, I have really good morals I have good morals. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul took aim at the pagans, the the Gentile outsiders, the irreligious, the licentious, those who have, that they sin boldly, blatantly wicked and rebellious. These are people from Romans 1, we saw people who do not honor God. They do not give thanks to God. They do not acknowledge God. Their lusts are on full display. They're not hiding them from anybody. They dishonor their bodies by indulging in dishonorable passions. And as Paul unleashes his censure against those idolaters and homosexuals and murderers and gossips, you can just imagine some Religious Jew standing there listening to Paul go on about the sins of the pagans, just nodding his head in approval. That's right. Those people, they're the worst. Those sinners, they're the problem with the world. And Paul has masterfully baited the trap. By starting that way, Romans 1.20, so they are without excuse. He's talking third person, those people out there. He gets the religious hypocrites to buy in, and they're going, yeah, yeah. Them, they're the problem with the world. And then, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul pivots, and the trap snaps shut, and he says, second person, singular, you, oh man. Therefore, you, nodding your head in agreement with me about how bad the homosexuals are, you have no excuse. Where did that come from? What did I do? The thing about self-righteousness is that recognizing and condemning sin in somebody else actually feels like righteousness. It's like fool's gold. Foolish people are so easily deceived, they fall for it, and it's not the real thing. When you see someone else who's actually sinning, and you know that what they're doing is actually wrong, and you feel something in you that tells you how wrong that is, and all of that's true, the temptation is to mistake that feeling for righteousness. And it's not. It's self-righteousness. Seeing sin in somebody else, as accurate as you may be, is not the same thing as righteousness. So, Paul's saying, so you disapprove of sin in others? Good. Now, don't mistake that feeling of moral superiority that you enjoy for actual righteousness. Recognizing that abortion is murder. And that homosexuality is sinful, is right, but it's not righteousness. That's an important distinction. To those people, Scripture warns, pronouncing moral judgments on others does nothing to increase your righteous standing before God. In fact, it actually incriminates you. The perfect illustration of this is, comes from 2 Samuel 12, the life of King David. If you know that story, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah murdered, God sent the prophet Nathan to go confront David. And so Nathan's approach with David was a lot like Paul's approach here. It's a little bit sneaky. He kind of baits the trap. He comes before King David and presents a legal case for the king to handle. None of the other judges can handle this. King David, we need your input. What should we do about this situation? There was this really, really rich man who had tons of flocks and herds, and he had a guest come to town. And do you know what he did, King David? He went to this poor man who lived next to him who only owned one lamb. That's all he owned. And the rich man who had all these flocks and herds took that one lamb and slaughtered it for dinner for his guest. What should we do about that? Scripture says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You, you are the man. David with his own mouth, pronounced his own sentence in passing judgment. And the problem wasn't the judgment. The problem was he was the one who fell under the judgment that he pronounced with his own lips. Every time you make a moral judgment against others, you pass sentence on yourself because you prove you know what God's law requires. And you don't do it. But just think about this. If God were to judge you on the day of judgment, Not by the entirety of his moral law, but simply based on every moral judgment you've passed on somebody else. Every time you've complained about somebody else who didn't do their part, didn't give their fair share, didn't keep their word, didn't whatever. If God just took all your words, played them back, and only judged you based on that standard, how would you fare? He would have more than enough to sentence us to an eternity of wrath and fury. Jesus used this vivid metaphor, Matthew 23, of whitewashed tombs to describe people who outwardly look all put together. And on the inside, they're just dead and rotten corpses, outwardly respectable and inwardly full of these sins, Paul just listed in Romans 1:29 through 31, covetousness, malice, envy, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, arrogance, disrespect to authority, unbelief. And in love, God confronts self-righteous hypocrites because self-righteousness is deadly self-deception. Paul asks in verse 3, do you suppose, oh man, do you really think that you will escape judgment that you hand out so readily to others? John Calvin calls it fictitious sanctity. Fictitious sanctity, and it provides false security, because doesn't it just feel good? good when you you know somebody else is so wrong don't mistake that feeling for righteousness and at this point the self-righteous person may begin to feel a little bit uncomfortable hey I mean yeah I'm not perfect but he has a ready response to trouble to, to rest his troubled conscience he might come back with an excuse like yeah but God is good I know that, I know that God is good and I know that God is forgiving and I know that God is gracious and that wasn't just a New Testament thing, that was the covenant name that God revealed to Moses. When he caused his glory to pass before Moses, God declared his name, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin and so the Jew would say, I know who God is, I know his covenant name, he forgives sin and again, this response gets traction because there's truth in it. All of that's true about God. But to arrogantly presume that you can continue in sin and then expect that God will just let you off on the day of judgment is itself deadly sin. Listen to verses four and five. Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? The the Greek word, I I think a better translation is, do you presume? despise the riches of his kindness do you pour contempt on his kindness do you view this infinite wealth of kindness as something worthless that's what the word means it's not just presumption it's it's despising it's it's scorning it's pouring contempt on do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. To take God's kindness as some permission from God to persist in sin is to trample on the riches of his kindness as something worthless and contemptible. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Listen to these words. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring re- repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is, the gra- is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Just expects God to cut slack and doesn't pay any attention to the Savior God had to provide to pay for your sin Those who persist in sin and expect to be forgiven don't actually delight at all in the forgiveness of God. To take His forgiveness so cheaply. If you treasure the forgiveness of God, then you go to Him and you repent and you confess your sins to Him and you trust in Him for forgiveness. His kindness leads you to repentance. Repentance to turning from forsaking sin and trusting in Christ. And instead, Paul says, every moment that you enjoy his kindness without turning to him in repentance, you are actually just heaping up more and more and more evidence against yourself to condemn you on the day of judgment. You are storing up wrath for yourself. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis addresses those who expect to get off in the end because, hey, I heard God is good. I heard he forgives people. He says this, some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. That's Paul's appeal to the self-righteous hypocrite. My friend, God is good. And we have reacted the wrong way. Professing to believe that God is forgiving is not the same as confessing your sins to God and relying on the righteousness of his son, Jesus, alone for your forgiveness. Third excuse. But I'm of really good stock. I come from good people. Notice the phrase Paul repeats in verses 9 and 10 the Jew first, and also the Greek. He's addressing the self-righteous person who expects that he will enjoy some special treatment from God on the last day, on the basis of his Jewishness. I'm Jewish. I come from the covenant people of God. All of the prophets came from us. The covenant was given to us. I'm Jewish. That's got to count for something. I'm going to get this preferential treatment from God. And so, though Paul here is addressing a Jew who thinks this way, Remember, God gave all the peoples of the earth an incredible lesson book in the Jewish people so that we could learn through those errors of unbelief and not fall into them. And people today are tempted to make the same mistakes under the new covenant. It's not like the Jews are unique among all people groups on earth as the only ones who ever felt pride and superiority in their heritage and their upbringing and their customs and their traditions. We're all prone to take confidence in belonging to some privileged class, right? So where do you find that temptation? I mean, God will deal with me differently because I'm fill in the blank. Jewish, white, black, Dutch, German, Scandinavian, Italian, American. I mean, there has never been a nation like America. That's got to count for something, right? I'm American. Republican, Democrat, Democrat. Conservative, liberal, people take such confidence and I belong to the right group, the right tribe. I mean, I'm, I'm reformed. I'm Baptist, I'm Lutheran. That's gotta count, right? I was baptized, catechized, confirmed. Does that count? All who expect preferential treatment to, to all those people, Paul responds like this, verses six through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Is there an order of treatment here? Yes. God dealt with the Jews first and then with all the world. And so on the day of judgment, he'll start with the Jews. And your Jewishness won't get you off because he will render to you according to your works. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. That is, God does not play favorites. He doesn't give preferential treatment to people based on some characteristic in them, your ethnicity, your gender, your class, your wealth, your education. God is impartial, and because God is impartial, therefore he judges each one for his own works. That means you will stand before God, and you will give an account to God for what you personally have thought and said and done, and nobody gets a get out of jail free card because they belong to a protected class. Nobody gets to say, well, I was in the privileged class. And nobody gets to say, well, I was in the oppressed class. And I was mistreated by others. Everybody answers for their sin before God. God is perfectly just and impartial. And that's not new. Proverbs 24, 12, will he not repay man according to his work? Psalm 62, 12, for you will render to a man according to his work. And there are only two outcomes. To those who persevere in doing good, God will give eternal life and glory, and honor, and peace. The fullness of his pleasures forevermore. And to those who do evil, God will give wrath and fury. Paul says there will be tribulation and distress. There will be eternal torment. And nothing here teaches salvation by works. There's no indication that eternal life is earned or merited. It's not deserved by anyone. Persevering in doing good is not earning eternal life from God. I think Paul is describing those who have been led to genuine repentance by the kindness of God. And having been led there by the kindness of God, they're kept there by the promise of God, and they persevere in doing good by faith. They persevere in the obedience of faith, as we saw in chapter 1, because they delight in the glory of God. And they will not be disappointed. They will see the glory of God and enjoy it forever. And it is always and only from beginning to end sheer, unmerited grace because God shows no partiality. Nobody has any grounds for boasting. It's just grace. Last excuse. The self-righteous hypocrite objects, but I have good doctrine. I have good doctrine. Paul deals with this false sense of security that comes from simply having access to God's word. The the argument that he's anticipating comes from Jews who feel superior about themselves as compared to the Gentiles because they have the law. They have special revelation from God. Moses and the prophets, that counts for something, right? Wrong. And once again, this temptation is not unique to the Jews. It's possible today for those who profess to be Christians to misplace their hope. I have such good doctrine. I mean, I I ascribe to the oldest creeds and the best confessions, and I don't tolerate any heterodoxy. I mean, I'm a strict six-day creationist, 66-book literalist. My doctrine is real good. To this, Paul's response is twofold. First, he argues that simply having God's revelation doesn't count for anything. Verses 12 through 13, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified. Merely having God's word and having all your doctrinal ducks in a row does not justify you. You will not be judged by God based on how many of the right doctrines you ascribed to, but whether you lived according to the theology you professed to believe. It's one thing to say, I believe all these things, it's another to actually live that out, and that's where you get humbled real fast. I profess to believe in this infinite, all-powerful, all-glorious God, and I'm, I am acutely aware that I don't treasure Him and esteem Him to the degree that would be proportionate based on what I claim to believe about him. That's humbling. Paul's talking about living faith. And living faith is not less than sound doctrine, obviously, because to live it out, you actually have to know content. The content matters. Orthodoxy matters. Sound doctrine matters. It's just so much more than sound doctrine. To profess it and live it is something else completely. And the temptation, the human heart is so prone to just take pride in being on the right side of the debate all the time. Watch out for that temptation. Saving faith is no dead faith that merely hears. It's living and active faith. This is what Moses warned the Israelites about when God delivered his law to them and they were about to go to the promised land, Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 19. These are sobering words. Beware. Beware. Lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What is that root that bears poisonous and bitter fruit? The root of it is this self-righteous, self-assured presumption. One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I... Walk in the stubbornness of my heart, nod my head in agreement with the covenant and all God's promises, amen. So glad I'm safe while I persist in my unbelief and my rebellion. Watch out. Watch out for that root. Don't mistake hearing for hearing with faith. That's why in our huddles we emphasize. Hear and obey is one of our habits. We want to hear God's word and do it. We want to be hearers and doers of the word. And Then Paul argues that knowing God's law doesn't make you quite as special as you think. Verses 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Conscience means with knowledge. That means everybody who sins, sins Knowing full well that what they're doing is wrong. And God has guaranteed that it's this way by giving every human being a conscience that convicts them. That doesn't mean that your conscience is the moral authority. In sin, our consciences are miscalibrated. But God has not left himself without a witness, He has an ally inside of you testifying against you on His side. Every time you do wrong, something in you knows that was wrong why you lay awake at night trying to convince yourself that it wasn't wrong. Because you know, and so Paul says to the self-righteous Jew, you think that just having access to God's law counts for something? The Gentiles, it's written on their hearts. They know right and wrong. They know that what they're doing is wrong. So when you're over here feeling so smug because you know what they're doing is wrong, they know it too. So don't misplace your confidence simply in having access to God's word. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and that faith that saves is never alone. It's a living and an active faith. And So what can we say before God? We are all without excuse. Whether your sins are the, the blatant, scandalous kind or the discreet Respectable, inconspicuous kind. You have no defense before God, no excuse. And yet the aim of Paul, the Spirit of God who inspired him to write this text, is that you not despair. That the riches of God's kindness and the reality of God's judgment are meant to lead you to abandon all thought of trusting in yourself when you stand there before God, stripped of all your excuses with nothing to say in defense of yourself, that's when you can, for the first time, treasure the riches of his mercy to you in Christ. The glories of the gospel, the greatness of this Savior. Those who admit their sinfulness most honestly before God are the ones who will treasure the grace of God most deeply. And and this gospel produces Humble, joyful, confident Christians who can proclaim this gospel in its entirety, including the reality that part of the gospel is God will judge the secrets of men. We can hold that out to the world without fear. And if the world says, well, you're a hypocrite to judge us, we can come back and say, not at all. Because the claim of the gospel is not that we're saved because we're so much better the claim of the gospel is that we're saved by the righteousness of Christ alone and we need that mercy too. So when we tell the world that they're living in sin, it's, not, it's totally different than self-righteousness. Totally different breed. Totally different kind of humility. It's still truth. It's still pointed and piercing. It's not softened at all. But it's without hypocrisy because we know the reality of our own sin. I mean, think about The humility the gospel breeds in us when we believe that according to this gospel, as verse 16 says, God judges the secrets of men. If you believe that, how could you possibly be arrogant? (laughs) What are you arrogant about? You know your secrets. Those who believe this gospel treasure The Savior held out to us here. And that's where we're going, where we'll get in chapter 3. And it's the hope that we have here. We know we are great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior who has purchased for us by his blood eternal life and glory and honor and peace forever. So turn to him and trust him. Let's pray. Father, it's good for us to know and be reminded that we have no defense, no excuse. We are quick to make excuses, quick to justify ourselves and seek to vindicate ourselves when we do wrong. And instead, we just, we just agree with you. You're right. And you are proved right again and again. And we confess, we say with you what you say about us. We are guilty. And we have no other hope except that in your kindness, you lead sinners to repentance. That's the kind of God you are. You want sinners to repent. You want people to know you. Thank you. May your kindness be on display with such force and clarity and beauty that our hearts would be moved to forsake all sin, secret sins, hidden sins, pet sins, that we would cling to Jesus with with a kind of desperate grip we know we, we have no other hope, no other hope but Jesus, our righteous Savior, amen.